Okay, what I'd like to do then um, is take you through a, a bit of a historical study of um, the Holy Eucharist, which includes, you know, kind of together um, how the Eucharist was celebrated, you know, the Mass, uh, before it was called the Mass. Um, but, but take you through a, through a historical study, I, th I think that's, that's helpful. It also might be surprising in, in some ways. Um, but, you know, one of the things we want to look at is how, how Jesus taught uh, in the Gospels uh, the real presence. Um, and then also look at, of course, St. Paul teaching the same thing. And then the fathers of the church, uh, the pre-Nicene fa fathers, so those are the the fathers of the church who predate the Council of Nicaea. Um, and so we have a few quotes from that. The value of that, I think, is for you to see that the early Christians all understood the same thing about the Eucharist that we continue to understand today, that there's, there's no change in understanding about, about the real presence, okay? Now, the form of the Mass is, uh, has changed. Uh, but the substance has not. So, you know, we begin with, actually, let's begin with uh, uh, the Gospel of John chapter 6. And uh, this is, uh, this is a, a very important uh, passage, kind of long. And uh, we'll often hear these, you know, excerpts of this on Sundays and, and weekdays. So, you know, what happens right before this discourse is uh, the feeding um, of the, of the yeah, 5,000 and, uh, you know, the, the multiplication of the, the loaves. And what happened was then the Lord goes across the Sea of Tiberias and the people follow him. And, you know, the people are following him because they were fed. Right? He, he fed, everyone was satisfied, they had enough food, and so go where the food is. You know? So they're following. I mean, you know, he's, he's working miracles, he's a great teacher, but he's also feeding. And so the people are following the Lord, you know, and they, they're, they're looking for more. And so um, he says that. We'll pick it up here at, if, you, if you're following along, you don't have to have your scripture with you, but um, uh, John uh, 6, 26. So he says to the people who followed him, Amen, amen, I say to you, are you looking for me not because you saw signs, miracle, but because you ate the loaves and were filled? Do not work for food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father God has sent his, set his seal. So then they said to him, What can we do to accomplish the works of God? Jesus answered and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one he sent. And so then they say, What sign can you do that we may see and believe in you? Do you understand the irony of that question? They followed him across the sea because he just performed a sign and fed them, multiplying the loaves. And now he's saying, Believe in me. And they say, Well, what sign can you <laughs> Well, okay. You know, and then, he, and then they continue. Our ancestors ate man in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus says, I say to you, it was not Moses 
who gave the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. See, they wanted him to uh, perform something like Moses performed, right? And, and it was through uh, the, if you will, the intercession of Moses that God sent the manna so that the people would be filled. Um, and so they're saying, well, what can you do? Because our ancestors got the manna from Moses. What can you do? And that's why he answers with, you know, it wasn't Moses that gave the manna. It was God. And he continues, for the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Wow. So they say, sir, give us this bread always. They're still thinking with their bellies, you know. They're thinking, wow, so bread from heaven. We, we want more bread. They're poor. They want more bread. How great it would be to have food and not have to work. So give us that bread from heaven. <laughs> All right. Then Jesus turns, turns it. He says, I am the bread I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. But I told you that although you have seen me, you do not believe. Everything the Father gives me will come to me, and I will not reject anyone who comes to me, because I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should not lose anything of what he gave me, but I should raise it on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I shall raise him on the last day. Okay, the next, the next line we hear is, the Jews murmured amongst themselves because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So all of a sudden they're figuring out, okay, he doesn't mean real bread. <laughs> because obviously if he's the bread that came down from heaven, we're not getting manna. We're not getting more multiplication of loaves and fishes because he's saying that he's the bread. And in fact, to, to further that assertion or that disappointment or disbelief, they said, is this not the son, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Do we not know his father and mother? Then how can he say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Stop murmuring among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him, and I will raise him on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to my Father and learns from him comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So what Jesus is saying is, look, I, I came from the Father. I have been sent. My words are truth. Believe in me and you will be saved. Because what comes next, they're going to need a whole lot of belief. Because he says again, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the desert, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Now, if Jesus were speaking metaphorically, right? If he was talking in signs or analogy, because he's just saying, whoever eats, my, eats this bread will live forever. The bread that I will give is my flesh. 
Now, maybe he's speaking metaphorically, right? So if he's speaking metaphorically, the people who would be hearing him wouldn't be confused by this, seemingly. So how do they respond? This is how they respond. The Jews quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They didn't quarrel amongst themselves and say, I wonder if we understand his analogy properly. Or what could he mean by that? They were clear. It was clear. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Which is a great question. How can he give us his flesh to eat? But the question does not admit of a misunderstanding of his assertion, which is that he is giving his flesh to eat. In fact, it professes that they understand him correctly. And so Jesus says to them, again, says to them and, it, and look at his response. If he's speaking an analogy, how horrific would it be for a prophet to say to people, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Right? Because that's creepy and weird. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's, you know, that kind of immolation set upon by other people, it, it's, it's, it's too strange. It's, it's a radical statement. If I said to you on Sunday, if you ate my flesh and drank my blood, you would be saved. I mean, obviously, you, you know Christian tradition, so you just know that I was crazy. But, but if you didn't know Christian tradition and I just came out with that, you'd say, maybe you'd either say, well, we misunderstood him or we understood him, but that doesn't sound right. The people listening to him said, now we understood what he means, but that doesn't sound right. Okay? So what does Jesus do? Does he seek to clarify their misunderstanding? No. Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. And just to make sure they haven't misunderstood. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. And again, to make sure they haven't misunderstood. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. To clarify once more, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. And again, not backing off. <laughs> Just as the living Father sent me, and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Unlike your ancestors who ate and still died, whoever eats this bread will live forever. They misunder if they misunderstood him, he wouldn't have said that. He would have said, no, 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 no. It's a metaphor. You know, eating my flesh and drinking my blood is some sort of, you know, metaphor for you know, receiving my words and living by faith, you know, like what the Protestants believe. He didn't say that. He said very clearly. And in fact, in the Greek, um, when he speaks of, of eating flesh, the, the Greek word actually means to chew. All right, to chew, to, to actually, you know, physically eat, not just sort of like eat, but to, to chew and, and even to gnaw. So it's, the Greek, you know, is, it's a very, very specific meaning of what he's saying. Okay. Now we move further. Then, so that was the Jews, right, not misunderstanding what he was saying. 
Now his disciples, so the Jews represent, in the Gospel of John, the Jews represent sort of the, the religious hierarchy of the day. They'd be the Pharisees and the scribes and, you know, the elders. That's, that's who John, when he says the Jews, that's who he's specifically referring to. Because obviously Jesus is a Jew, you know, and obviously his disciples are Jewish. All right, so... But now we move to the disciples. Then many of his disciples who were listening said, this saying is hard. Who can accept it? They didn't say, and you understand I'm trying to prove a point. They didn't say, this is a really difficult metaphor. Could you try something easier? They said, this saying is hard. How in the world can we accept it? Now, these are the people who have been with Jesus for a long time. And then we hear, Since Jesus knew that his disciples were murmuring about this, he said to them, Does this shock you? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit that gives life, while the flesh is of no avail. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. So he knows, right? Again, he's saying, look, you think this is a big deal, that I could give you my flesh and blood to eat and drink. You're going to see even more amazing things than that. They're going to, they're going to witness the ascension. They're going to witness the resurrection. They, they, they don't even know what's in store for them, right? So he's saying, does this shock you? Again, you wouldn't say that if you were speaking in metaphor. You, you would say that if you knew they understood what you meant, and you were, not, you were clarifying and being even more specific, but you were not backing down. And so he continues. But there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning the ones who would not believe and the one who would betray him. And he said, For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. So he doesn't back down. He says, look, this is the teaching. This is what's going to happen. This is what I'm going to give. And this is what you need to do to have eternal life. And yes, this is a difficult teaching, and he understands that many are having a hard time believing. And so he continues, or the the gospel continues, As a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer accompanied him. Now, why why would he let that happen if it was a metaphor? Right? If he was just saying, no, 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 you know, we're going to do bread and wine and you know, we're just going to pretend it's me. He's not going to let every, you know, all these people leave. Many of his disciples leave over that. You wouldn't do that. Why would you do that? That would make him a bad teacher and a bad leader. It would be stupid. You don't risk losing all these people because they misunderstand you. But you'll let them go if they haven't. If the truth which you are uttering is, you know, that important, you're, you're, you're willing to lose disciples over that truth. So as a result, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer accompanied him. Jesus then said to the twelve, so the Jews didn't believe him. Then you have all these disciples who are following him, and many of them just, they're like, we're done. <laughs> we followed you for a while. You know, we listened to what you had to say. We saw a lot of signs and wonders, but this is too hard. We're, and we questioned you about it, and you maintained we're leaving. So then Jesus turns to the 12. 
the closest, right? The closest, his apostles, the 12. And he says, do you also want to leave? He didn't say, please don't go. He just said, do you want to leave too? He'll let them leave. And Simon Peter, who always answers for the 12, said, Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. Okay. Now, what would happen moving forward then is we get to, uh, you know, what we celebrate as Holy Week and we get to the Last Supper. So he taught his disciples and he taught his apostles. And most of the disciples leave, but the apostles stay. And, uh, you know, he, he was very clear about you will eat my flesh and drink my blood. They have no clue how this is going to go down. How is this going to work? We don't know how that's going to work, but we trust you. All right, so we move forward, and we're getting close to um, his passion, and we're at the Last Supper, and, um, and Jesus, at the Last Supper, takes the bread, and he's doing something new. This is the Passover meal, but now he's changing it. He's changing the Passover meal. What did the Passover meal represent? Do you remember when the Jews ate the Passover meal? Yes, remember the Exodus. Remember the Jews are enslaved in Egypt, okay? And Moses comes to, to the Pharaoh and he's like, look, let my people go. You know, there's an old movie about it. I don't know if you've seen the Ten Commandments. Charlton has, let my people go. And then there's all the plagues, the ten plagues. And the last, the last you know, plague or the last punishment is the death of the firstborn, unless um, each person kills a lamb, Right? kills a lamb, roasts the lamb, puts the blood on the doorpost, eats unleavened bread because they eat unleavened bread because they got to prepare to get out of town. Because what happens is when all these firstborns die, Pharaoh finally says, okay, fine, go. And so the, the, uh, the Jews ate this meal as though in haste, as though on a journey. They ate a sacrificial lamb, right? They ate unleavened bread, and this was the meal by which death passed over them. And it was a meal for the journey Psst, out of town because Pharaoh changed his mind, <laughs> came after him. Wait, all my slave labor is going out of Egypt. So he went after him. Um, okay, so the, the Jews would commemorate this meal and do to this day as, as a memorial of God's saving action, saving them you know, from this slavery. So Jesus comes. And again, he fulfills the old law. He doesn't change it so much as brings it to its proper fruition. The Ten Commandments, all of the feasts, the meals, etc. And especially the Passover meal. So here they are at the Passover meal. And during the meal, Jesus takes bread. And, the, you know, and it's unleavened bread because that's the Passover meal. And he blesses it. And he breaks it. And then he does something brand new. And he says to them, take this and eat of it, for this is my body, which will be given up for you. And then we hear at the end of the meal, he takes the cup filled with wine, he blesses it, and he says to them, take this. This is the sign of the everlasting covenant. This is my blood, which will be shed for you. Take this and drink. 
Obviously, I'm paraphrasing. Take this and drink. At that moment, the, Jew, or the, 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 the apostles would have went, oh, okay, that's what he meant. He was saying that this was going to have to happen, but this is what he meant, and this is how it's supposed to happen. This is what we're supposed to do, okay? And he tied it to his death on the cross. Why? Because it's through the death, his death on the cross that death passes over us. He's the sacrificial lamb. He's the one now slaughtered, but the one definitive sacrifice that forgives all of sin for all of eternity. And we repeat that, or we, we don't repeat the sacrifice. We participate in the sacrifice. All right? How can we participate in a sacrifice and not just repeat it during Mass? We participate in a sacrifice because what Christ does, remember, everything Christ does has eternal value because He is God. So His death on the cross is not merely something that happens in time. Because He is God, it's something that happens in eternity. <coughs> this is how... He can forgive, that death can forgive all of the sins of those who came before and all of those who would come after. And so we say, this is the, the teaching of the church, <coughs> that upon the altar, when the priest, when the priest uh, uh, you know, performs the Mass, does the Mass, prays the Mass, whatever you want to say, back in the day they'd say reads the Mass, um, at that moment, eternity, time and eternity unite. So that the, the sacrifice of Christ is not repeated, but rather it's joined. Because at the Mass, we join in eternity. Because it's the action of Christ through the priest, who is priest and also victim. It's Christ who makes present His one eternal sacrifice on the cross. Okay. Now, what's important to look at then is, you know, what did, what did St. Paul say about it? He said the same thing. I think I, have, I think I have it written down. Is it Corinthians? Yeah, St. Paul to Corinthians 10. How well do I know my Bible? Is it one? Oh, I don't know if it's one or two. Oh, there, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. That's what it is. 1 Corinthians 11. Okay, so St. Paul comes after Christ ascended, right? Um, and then, okay, there it is. So St. Paul is writing, so when we hear St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, He's writing to the church in the city of Corinth, right? When he's writing to the Galatians, he's writing to the church in Galatia. The church already exists in all of these cities or towns. And these letters are, are exhortations to those Catholics in those towns. Okay, and so he handles different issues that are coming up um, within early, early Catholicism. And so he talks about the tradition of the institution, 
This is, again, 1, 1 Corinthians 11.23. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was handed over, took bread, and after he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of, of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Okay, so... Okay, so, you know, the, the initial writings of St. Paul are going to be around um, 74 A.D., you know, out to about 100 A.D. or so. Um, and then what we have is we have all these other Christian writers, okay? We have Christian writers like uh, Ignatius of Antioch, who died around 107, St. Justin Martyr, who died around 165, um, St. Irenaeus around 202. Um, so what we have, what I'm trying to set up for you, is a consistent belief. Not like Jesus taught this stuff, and then the Roman church took over and changed it all. But that from the beginning, there was a consistent understanding about what the Eucharist was. Okay, what people were actually consuming. So just let me give you quotes here, just to... So this is from Ignatius of Antioch. Um, and he says, They keep away from the Eucharist and from the prayers. He's speaking of, of these people who have fallen away. They keep away from the Eucharist and from the prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who suffered for our sin and whom the Father in his goodness raised from the dead. And he continues, Be ye resolved to celebrate one Eucharist only, for there is only one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ and one, only one chalice for unification with his blood. Justin Martyr, 165, death, 165. And he gives a description of the, the primitive Christian Eucharistic celebration. And so he says this of the Eucharistic banquet. We receive this not as ordinary bread and ordinary drink, but as our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, was incarnated by the Word of God and assumed flesh and blood for the sake of our salvation. So as we have been taught, the food over which thanksgiving has also been made, or which has been, <laughs> this is a tough word, Eucharist, Eucharistized, Eucharistia means thanksgiving, okay? So whenever we, we hear that, so the word, you know, when, when people are speaking Greek or Latin, uh, Eucharistia is going to be thanksgiving. That's where the whole word comes from. The whole celebration is supposed to be thanksgiving. So the food over which thanksgiving has been made by the prayer of the word which came from him, by which food our blood and flesh are nourished by transmutation, is both flesh and blood of that same incarnate Jesus. Okay? Um, I'll just do one more. You get the point. Irenaeus, death around 202. The bread over which thanksgiving is pronounced is the body of the Lord and the chalice of his blood. Christ confessed the chalice deriving from the creation of his own blood with which he permeates our blood and the bread deriving from the creation he declared to be his own body with which he strengthens our bodies. 
Our flesh is nourished by the body and blood of the Lord and becomes his member and thus enabled to accept the gift of God, which consists eternal life, in which consists eternal life. How can they, he's speaking of the Gnostics, those who um, have, um, the Gnostics were, were a particular sect in, in the early, that early time of the second, how do you say, third century, third century? So he says, how can the Gnostics feel assured that the bread over which thanksgiving has been made is the body and blood of their Lord and the chalice of his blood if they do not declare him the the son of the world's creator? Thus, St. Irenaeus established the resurrection of the flesh on the real partaking of the body and blood of the Lord. So the Gnostics, you know, basically kind of broke away and started doing their own thing with um, with a with a theology that had deviated quite far from Christianity. So he's, what you have in the early church is you have a lot of writings about, no, those people left the faith and they're getting it wrong. And what he's correcting them on is, look, this is the real presence of Christ. We believe it's the body and blood of Christ. Same thing Ignatius was doing. Okay. And we have more. I mean, you can, Tertullian, St. Cyprian, and then once we pass, uh, Nicaea 3.25, you know, it, it just continues. So the point that I'm making is when it comes to what did the church believe about that bread and wine that they practiced from the time Jesus said to do it all the way through to today, it's, an, it's a consistent belief that what was happening is that bread and that wine were, were being changed into the body and blood of Christ. It's, it's, it's undeniable historically. All of these writings are, are, uh, are out there. You know, you can, people read these writings. They're called the Apostolic Fathers. They're all readily available. Um, so there's a, there's a validity to that. What's the validity to that? Well, not so much toward people who, you know, like an atheist or somebody who doesn't believe in, in Christianity at all, but because what we have is what we have. We've got, so let's say 33 AD, we got the, uh, the death of Christ. And uh, here's, here's Father John teaching you today. Now, <laughs> the Roman Catholic Church traces its roots all the way back. It's undeniable historically. The only way you can say that's not true is if you don't know history. All right, but if you read history, if you look at history, it's clear. It goes all the way back to the apostles following on Jesus. And because the teaching is all, the essential teachings on, you know, Christology, the doctrine of God, the Eucharist, it's all the same. You know, and it was the authority of the church that determined all of it in the first place. All right, so what you have is you have the Eucharist as we uh, currently understand it. So we'll say, uh, you know, 2017. Now, as we know, though, there, there have been breaks in the, in the, uh, in the church. In the, the first, you know, the first one, the Great Schism. Anybody know the year? 1054, at which point the Eastern Church broke away from the West. And this is where we get the Eastern Orthodox Church. Okay. And the, and the, the Roman Church holds the Eastern Orthodox in great esteem. It's the only non, non-Catholic church 
that the church actually calls a church. All of the other ones the church calls ecclesial communions. And the reason why uh, the, uh, the Catholic Church will refer to the Eastern Orthodox as a church is because they have a valid Eucharist and a valid priesthood. So the Orthodox still believe in the real presence. So it's still, so even though there were debates about the primacy of, of, of the Pope, there were debates about the procession of the Holy Spirit, right? There were, there were theological debates as well as a lot of politics. That never happens. Um, you know, they excommunicate each other, all the rest. But there's still an unbroken tradition of belief in the real presence. The Orthodox believe in the real presence to this day. And they, they trace their roots back here. Now, it, it takes until, we'll split it in half, 1517 with Luther. So it takes 1,500 years until you have the, the Protestant Reformation where you have first Luther who then denies, kind of denies the real presence. Okay? He denies it, but he also accepts it because he believes in what's called consubstantiation. But the reality is that he essentially denies the real presence, even though he says he maintains it. Because what he, what he maintains is that when, uh, when the Eucharist or the, or the Communion Sunday is celebrated in the Lutheran Church. Now, remember, at this time, the Lutheran Mass looks just like the Catholic Mass. Because what really, what really happened here was Luther was a scrupulous guy, and he didn't believe he was saved. And so he had a real, he was a priest. He had a really hard time with confession. He never thought he was saved. He also had a really hard time with the corruption that was going on in the Catholic Church, which is true. And you got, you got these idiot priests running around the countryside selling indulgences, claiming to get people out of purgatory if you just give money so that St. Peter's can be built. I mean, it's a, if you study history, it's a, it's a torrid ridiculous. It's pretty interesting, though. But it's true. I mean, there were abuses. However, what happened was because of... Now I'm really going a far afield. Well, you know. So, remember, when did the Roman Empire fall? Well, this is debatable, but we're going we're gonna to say around the 500s. Although some will say that you know, the, the Western Empire was transferred to the Eastern Empire in Constantinople, and so the Roman Empire didn't really fall until around 1,000. All right. The point being, though, that what we call the Middle Ages, which we're going to take all the way from uh, here to about here with the, with the Renaissance, um, the Middle Ages... Uh, in the Middle Ages, society collapsed. Europe collapsed. There was no governance, and it was overrun by barbarians. The Vandals, the Goths, the Visigoths, and they were just going all over Europe and into Italy and, and sacking, raping, pillaging, all the rest, right? It was in ruins. There was only one organization that, that actually, actually existed as, a, as an organization, as some sort of uh, way to connect society, and that was the Catholic Church. It, this is just historically true. It's the only thing that, that could hold society together. And so what happened was, um, and this is where some of, that, some of that corruption comes from, because what do we know that corrupts 
Absolutely. Power. All right. So the church takes over, you know, the governance of Europe because there's no one else to do it. Now you might say, well, they really meant to be really wicked and vile. Well, there was nothing else there. And if you're trying to, if you're trying to survive the, the Goths and the Visigoths and the Vandals and, you know, uh, uh, Attila the Hun and, you know, I mean, if you're trying to survive all of these barbarians coming in and killing everybody, you've, you've got to protect the people. You've got to protect society. And so this is what the church did. And slowly but surely, after all of this fell, the church began to put together civilization. The church put together hospitals. The university is a creation of the Catholic Church. The university itself, the University of Paris, the University of Bologna, right? The first universities that, that ever existed. Um, science uh, has, has huge innovations during this time. Um, in the 1200s, um, you get the rediscovery of Aristotle, which leads to scholasticism, right? In a, in a completely different view of reality, which, which broke open all of these discoveries of science because of Aristotle's, you know, Aristotle observed and he had science. I mean, it was very primitive relative to what we would say it is today, but he, he believed in, in examining the material world. All right, so what happens though is to keep the whole thing going, what do you do when you get a, you know, when you get, uh, like with the United States, before the states are united, you've got all these independent states, you know, and, and, and then they come together as one. Well, if you're going to have one thing kind of grouped together and you got to keep it, keep it together, you're going to have administration and you're going to have bureaucracy and you're going to have taxes, lots of taxes. So what, what was happening is Europe started to recover. Um, Italy started to recover Gaul, Spain, you know, Gaul, Germany, France, that area started to recover. But especially in Germany, they were very resistant to all these taxes from the Pope. And the Pope kept exercising all of this power. Did he go too far? Yes, absolutely. But when you've been doing it for about, you know, 750 years to just have this you know, it's, it's easy to look back on it now and say, well, why didn't they just understand liberal democracy in, in 1054 or 1100? <laughs> Nobody, it didn't exist yet, right? Democracy didn't, I mean, they, you know, Plato thought of democracy. Yeah, I mean, some of, the, some of the, uh, uh, the philosophers back in Greece thought about these concepts, but a lot of those writings were lost. Um, however, nonetheless, you can imagine when you get into this kind of machine moving, as a, as, a, as a power, it's hard to give it up. Luther comes around and he gives the German princes a way to break away from the church and break away from having to pay taxes and still maintain a religion for the people because they knew that the people had to have some sort of religion because it was also a way to exercise control over, over the people. I mean, people, you know, I mean, religion can be used for good or for evil. So what happened was um, Luther went, especially, and this is why there, there's so much, so much Protestantism in Northern Europe, he went to, to the, into Northern Germany, into those areas, and was protected by these princes because these princes wanted to break away from Rome. So they did. So they got a new religion out of it, 
And Luther was, was sort of protected and given an ability to, to promote his new doctrines, etc. Okay? Um, and this is why Protestantism really was given the ability to spread, because, because of politics, because of power. And you can say, well, who's at fault? Well, you know, everybody's at fault. All right, so the Eucharist, right? Um, okay, so it's not until here that you get people starting to say things like, ah, it's a symbol, you know, and it's not just Luther. Luther had a much closer uh, teaching. He believed, that, he believed in what was called consubstantiation um, as opposed to the... as opposed to the Catholic teaching of transubstantiation. He believed that essentially for the believer, if the believer believed it was the real presence, then it was the real presence. If they didn't believe that it was the real presence, then it wasn't the real presence. So there's no objective reality of what's happening, right? Which is why, I mean, philosophically, it's, it's incoherent. Um, I mean, it's, it's really radical subjectivism back in 1517 that I get to determine God's presence in bread and wine. How amazing, right? It, it clearly, but, but, you know, he was trying to break away from the power. So, you know, he's undoing the priesthood. He's undoing marriage. He's getting rid of all kinds of theology. So this also gives him a lot of control. And remember that Luther was very much about control when the peasants revolted and wanted to go back to Rome. He told the princes to just wipe them out and kill them, which they, there was a lot of carnage. So he was all about suppression of anybody who would disagree with him, um, or at least there are examples of that, okay? Which isn't to say that he, he was a horrible guy. I didn't know him, but, I mean, he's a fellow German, but, <laughs> but it's just what happened. It's just stuff that happened, okay? So what the church believes is transubstantiation, which means that the entire substance of the bread and wine change into Jesus Christ. So Jesus is fully present in the bread and the wine. So if you receive just the, the Eucharist under the form or the accidents of bread, you're receiving the full Jesus. You don't need to receive both, you know, the Eucharistic bread and the, the chalice. Just one or the other is the full Jesus because you can't separate Jesus. He's either really present or he's not. So he's really present under the form of bread and really present under the form of wine. Okay, that's called the uh, doctrine of concomitance. I think there's just one M. Viewers at home can look it up. So, um, doctrine of concomitance, that Jesus, if Jesus is really present, he's really present fully. Body, blood, soul, and divinity. Okay. Now, The ritual form, form of, the, of the Mass, or the Eucharist, however, has... So while the belief of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist has not changed um, in the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church, um, the, the liturgy has changed a lot, a lot, okay? So initially what, what would happen is um, that... The Eucharist was initially celebrated uh, weekly. Very, so as opposed to the Passover, which was celebrated yearly, the Eucharist became celebrated weekly. Um, and it was celebrated in connection with 
um, worshiping at temple. Remember, all the first Christians were Jewish. And so what they would do is they, they, the way they saw um, the exercise of this new way, as it was called, the way, the way they saw that being fulfilled is, is maintaining their practice of Judaism as well. This becomes one of the, the main, the, the largest debate in, in the, at the beginning of the church. You have St. Paul arguing with, with Peter about whether the Gentiles have to convert to Judaism before they can become Christian. Okay, that's the big debate. And, and Paul, Paul, of course, maintained that they did not have to. And then finally we hear in Acts, in Acts that Peter has this vision or this dream and he's convinced then that the Lord is saying the Gentiles no longer have to, I mean, they don't have to convert to Judaism to become essentially Catholic, which to the great delight of many grown men, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was more than that, too. So what, but then what happened, <laughs> but then what happened is uh, um, then the worship, the Sunday worship began to break away from, from the Judea, Judaism, from, from the Jewish worship, okay? So initially, um, there, were, there were a lot of Jews who wouldn't do this, this new way. They, they wouldn't celebrate the Eucharist. They wouldn't celebrate Thanksgiving, okay? Or the, the meal of love, as, as it was called. They wouldn't celebrate it. And initially, the Eucharist was celebrated after a meal. So it would be a, like a full-on meal. And uh, there, I, I don't remember because I, I don't memorize the scriptures, you know. I can only fit so much in my head. And, um, but, but... <laughs> But Paul tells, tells, remember there's that one passage where, where ta- Paul is telling the people, look, some of you are coming to this meal and you're, you have all this great food and this great spread and then you got all these poor people. You need to share what you have with the poor people. Well, that's because the initial Eucharist was celebrated after a meal, just like the Lord Jesus did, right? He had the Passover meal and then you have the Eucharist at the end. So they were modeling it on that. Now, as we... Let's see. Okay, so in the first century then, the, as, as uh, Christianity is breaking away from Judaism, they shift their worship from, remember the Jews keep the Sabbath on Saturday, so they shift their, their celebration of the Eucharist from Saturday as a Sabbath to Sunday as a Sabbath, because for Christians... The, the most important day is Easter, right? Jesus rise, rising from the dead, which was a Sunday. So the day of resurrection comes to be when, um, when the Eucharist is celebrated. All right. Now, there's not a whole lot of, uh, Bill and I were talking about this. There's not a whole lot. We actually have some prayers that exist from, from the uh, from the early days of the church. The, the prayer, the Eucharistic prayer that I use on Sunday and, and weekdays, um, it's called Eucharistic Prayer 2, very original name. It comes after Eucharistic Prayer 1 and precedes 3. Um, <laughs> but there's Eucharistic Prayer 1, 2, 3, 4. There's Eucharistic Prayer for Special Needs and Occasions. There's two Eucharistic Prayers for Reconciliation. There's Eucharistic Prayers for masses with children, but the, 
the essentials are all there. There's an essential form. And Eucharistic prayer, too, was modeled after the most ancient form that, that we have. And, it, you know, we didn't have Eucharistic prayer, too, until after Vatican II. Prior to Vatican II, from the Council of Trent, from the mid to late 1500s until 1965-ish, we had one Mass that everybody had to celebrate in the Latin rite. Um, however, in the early church, the essentials were the, the thanksgiving, the, the words of institution, so the bishop and then the priests, because after the church started growing, right, initially you just had bishops who were, who were successors of the apostles, but then as, as the faith kept growing and growing, the bishops needed help. Initially they ordained deacons to help with widows and orphans and the distribution of food and distribution of, of almsgiving, um, but then they, the bishops, but the deacons could never perform mass. You know, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't do that. So the bishops then said, well, we need some, some guys to help us out. So that's where you get presbyters or priests, okay? And there's, not, there's, there's some commonality between how the Eucharist is performed, but there's not like a, this is how you do it. Here's the book. This is how you do it. It's just sort of, there's some improvisation, there, there's some, because the church just doesn't have a need to do that yet. I mean, the essentials are the words of institution, which are on the night before he died, he took bread, giving thanks, right? That has always been a part of it. But then there's other forms, different reading of scripture. And again, early on, there's this celebration of a meal first. Now, as we move further and further, um, and, you know, one of the things, too, um, remember that prior to uh, 313, uh, all of these celebrations are happening in homes and in secret locations. Why? Persecution by the Roman Empire, right? So the Christians were, uh, were considered uh, uh, to be, um, what shall we say, dissenters of the official faith of Rome, the paganism of Rome. And so the, the, in the early, in the first uh, uh, 250 years, you have an incredible amount of Christians being just killed. You know, that's where you get being fed to the lions, being um, grilled alive, burnt at the stake, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the... The Eucharist is celebrated in secret. Now, how do you get in to this kind of club <laughs> if, if that club, you know, the Catholics, are afraid that somebody might infiltrate and kill them, right? How do you get in? Well, what, what, what has to happen is, is somebody has to vouch for you. Somebody in the community is, is outside of the community, you know, and they, they meet up with somebody who's interested in the Christian faith. And these are called sponsors. And these sponsors would meet with these people who wanted to be, you know, Christian, and they would interrogate them kind of. I mean, they'd, they'd get to know them. They'd find out I mean, are they a plant? You know, are they a, are they a double agent? Um, is it somebody who's going to, because that would happen. You know, this is somebody just trying to, f to figure out where we are and how to kill us, or are they, are they authentic? And so that sponsor would, would, you know, get to know their family, get to know what kind of life they were leading, 
And, you know, the, um, the, these people who wanted to enter the church would have to, you know, give up their immoral, way, immoral ways of life. Um, they'd have to start living a Christian way of life, and, and it would take time until they were permitted to enter. And during this whole process, uh, before they could enter, they were called catechumens. We, we have these today, by the way. All right. Catechumens are those who are seeking entry into the church to be baptized, and they have sponsors who are supposed to vouch for them. Um, so so what, what happens then is this, is this is all, you know, sort of happening underground, etc. Now, with the Edict of Milan in 313, remember the Emperor Constantine, right before this most famous battle, a battle you should all know the name of. It's one of the most critical battles in all of Western civilization. It's the Battle of... The Battle of the Mulvian Bridge... Battle of the Mulvian Bridge, and prior to the night before the battle, Constantine you know, sees a vision. Under this sign you will conquer, and it's the sign of the cross. So he has the sign of the cross put on all the shields of, of his men, and he, he wins the battle. And so when he becomes emperor, right, it doesn't take too long, and he makes, with the, through the Edict of Milan, allows Christianity to be legally practiced within the Roman Empire, 313. In 380, it was the Emperor Theodosius who proclaimed Christianity the religion of the state of Rome. So in a very short period of time from just being allowed, uh, you know, Christianity in, in 67 years is declared the state religion. Okay? Now, at this point, the word Eucharist changed from describing the act of worship to naming the elements of the celebration. Okay, so you, you would say back in the day, if you grew up in the 200s, you, you talk about going to Eucharist. You talk about, hey, are you going to go to Eucharist today? No, I don't really like the new priest. I'm going to stay home. That's, you wouldn't say going to Mass, you'd say going to Eucharist. So it would describe the act of worship, okay? Does that make sense? But what happens is, over time, the word Eucharist sort of begins to be narrowed to just describe that which was changed into the body and blood of Christ, okay? And that's, that's how that process takes place. So that's, it's, it's been quite a while that we've been largely calling, uh, referring to the Eucharist as just the... the, the uh, the body and blood of Christ. Um, okay. Now, what would happen, though, is these catechumens during the Eucharist were allowed to, uh, they, were, they were allowed to be a part of um, Eucharist, the first part of Eucharist, right? Where you have reading of Scripture and, you know, uh, Father giving a long, boring homily, you know, or maybe a really good one. I've read some of the homilies. They're pretty long. Um, but then they were dismissed. They were dismissed, dismissed, missed, dismissed. Um, they were dismissed, mise. Um, their dismissal 
and this process became known as the mass of catechumens. And it's at this point we get the word mass. It comes from dismissal. Do you remember the dismissal in the old mass? Anybody who's old? The priest would say, so I say the mass is ended, go in peace. Deacon picks all kinds of flowery ones, which are fine. Um, there's, there's, you know, there's a bunch you can say, or there's, I don't know how many, but you know, the mass is ended, go in peace. Back in the Latin mass, though, it was ite, misa, est, go, it is finished. This is the verb to be, or go, you are dismissed. Okay, ite, go. All right, so that's what was said from, from the Tridentine Mass through the Mass of, of Vatican II, ite, misa, est. So we get Mass from this dismissal of catechumens, okay? From go, you are sent, get out. You can't have Eucharist yet, because you can't have Eucharist yet. You're not in. You're not baptized. You're not Catholic. Can't have Eucharist if you're not Catholic. You never could. Never could. This is, this is a teaching of the church that, you know, I mean, people will ask about it now because, you know, we have, we have, I have half my family was, was Lutheran, actually. So, you know, we have all kinds of uh, mixed families. I, I don't mean that pejoratively, but, you know, interfaith marriages. And we have a lot of friends who are not Catholic and you know, we'd like to have them come to Mass, and they're obviously everyone's welcome at Mass, but they can't receive Holy Communion. And, um, you know, a lot of times people think, well, is there some, some kind of rule, John Paul II or Pope Benedict or some rigid Pope from the 20th century? No, from the very beginning, you could not receive Eucharist until you were baptized, anointed, and then brought in to receive the Eucharist. It all happened in one, one liturgy, on the night before Easter, the Easter Vigil, the catechumens would be baptized. Then they would receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit being chrismated. Um, and then they would come into Eucharist. Okay, Back in those days, baptism was that. It was all of that. It wasn't split up into, I get baptized, and then later on I'll get confirmed, and then later on I get Holy Eucharist. Baptism was the process of initiation. Okay? It was only later on, we'll have to do a different class, where uh, confirmation is separated from baptism, okay? It was very, very much later. But this is one of the reasons why a lot of bishops are restoring the, the order, right? And they've moved confirmation back earlier as opposed to after Holy Communion because there are three sacraments of initiation, three sacraments by which you become a Catholic, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist. And from the most ancient times, that's how it happened. And that was the process, and that was the order, okay? So the bishops have, have moved confirmation, a lot of them, to a younger age to restore this order of initiation. Okay. I don't think I can get all of these notes. It's not a lot, but if I start talking about the Battle of the Mulvian Bridge again, we'll never get there. Um, Now, as, as we move further, the, the church, uh, because, because the church is influenced by, it's just sort of a, a Western thing. In the East, it's different. 
in the Eastern Orthodox Church and even in the Byzantine Church, which are, they are in communion with us. But, but in the Western Church, there's a, there's a desire to decide or to determine when does Jesus become present? What is the moment he becomes present? And so it's, it's during the time of the 400s that the church comes to, to define or determine that it's during the words of institution, that when the priest says the words of institution with the bread, that Jesus becomes present in the bread and the wine. Um, in the East, that was never really, they, they just didn't have the same desire to define it, although they would, they would largely say it was the epiclesis, the epicletic gesture priest do this. Whenever a priest does this, he's calling down the Holy Spirit. So in the East, they would largely focus on that. But in the West, words of institution. Um, okay. The, 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 in the West, uh, the liturgy, um, this is what it also came to be called. Um, so you have, you know, initially you have Eucharist, and then you have Mass, and then What's happening is called uh, liturgia, which means liturgy, which means a public work or work of the people. Liturgy is work. I go to Mass, but I don't get anything out of it. It's work. It's work. I don't get anything out of it. I don't care. But Father, aren't you trying? I don't care. I don't, it's not, well, I mean, I care. You know, I care. But it's not about you getting something out of it. It's about you doing work. It's about us doing work. I'm up there doing work. Why does the, why does the church say that priests should only say one mass a day? Because it's work. Is it hard work? I don't know how to compare it. I, I've done manual labor before. It's been a while, but I've done it. It's different kind of work, but it's exhausting. Uh, and I can't, I don't know, I can't explain it. You guys have done stuff that's exhausting on a mental and emotional and spiritual level. So, you know, it's that kind of thing. But it's work. See, th this is the problem with, with a lot of the way that we see the Mass. And, and what we do on Sunday is that we come expecting to be or wanting to be entertained a bit. Mass is boring. I don't like the music. Yeah, the homily wasn't great today. Well, at least we have donuts, you know. <laughs> That's my inner monologue, by the way. <laughs> I'm not speaking for you. I'm speaking for me. Um, so the point is, look at, look, at what, look at what we're saying here is, though, this is Thanksgiving, right? I'm trying to give you a, a, a good theology of what we do at the Mass. It's work. It's Thanksgiving. It's it's, it's about what we're doing. We're offering stuff to God. We're offering ourselves to God. Father's up there offering the bread and wine to God. We're, we're offering our sacrifices to God. We are doing stuff for God. We are in worship. It's an act. It's, it's, it's work to do what we do. And when we change the way, if we, if we change our vision of what we're doing, like, you know, so I got the little nieces and nephew and stuff. And so I've had to answer this question, not to mention all the kids over 17 years. Father, why do we have to go to Mass every Sunday? Or 
Uncle John, why do we have to go to Mass every Sunday? I don't always like it. And uh, I say, well, I understand. But it's not about what you're getting. It's about what you're doing. Is it too much? Is it too much for God to ask you to give him one hour a week to worship him? Is that too much? I mean, he really asked you to give him a day. But, but actually, he doesn't ask us to worship him a whole day. He wants us to rest that day. He gave us the day, the Sabbath, to rest, to rest. And in the current sort of construction of, of how we, we worship, you know, one hour a week? You can't go and worship God for one hour a week. That usually makes people feel pretty guilty. Um, which, but it's, it's a good question. Can you not give God an hour a week? And why can't you? Well, I don't want to. Okay, fine. You don't want to. But even my, even my little nieces and nephew, when they were little, understood when I said to them, you know, God asks you for an hour a week to worship him and say thank you. You can't do that? Yeah, I can do that. It's utterly reasonable, which really changes the way I think a lot of people would look at Mass, having to go to Mass. Kickoff isn't until 11, now with, the time <laughs> now with the time change. And it used to be at 10, and Father still got you out in about 35 minutes, because he knows. Um... Unless Green Bay's kickoff was the late game, in which case I took my time. Um, okay, so um, one of the things that developed in the 6th century was that um, there was a great desire on the part of the priest to celebrate this, the Eucharist every day. Initially, it was only on the weekend or, you know, on the Sabbath. But then you, you began to have this this uh, daily mass, okay, but you wouldn't have a lot of people there, so it became a private mass, okay? And so you, what you have developing in the 6th century, the 500s, is all these priests saying a private mass. There, there aren't any people. There are more priests. I mean, if you, got, if you have a whole handful of priests in one, in one church, you don't need that many masses for, for the people, and people aren't really going to daily mass anyway. They're, you know, they're working. Right? It's an agrarian society yet. They're working from dusk till dawn. They're going to come one day a week, but coming during the week is just not, a, not something that's really taken hold. Now, it wasn't until Charlemagne, um, who tried to impose the Roman ritual in his realm in 784. He wanted everybody, remember during this time, right? I mean, the, a lot of the, the uh, uh, heads of state were Catholic, most of them. And... Um, at least in the Catholic countries. And um, since they wanted uniformity, because it was kind of chaotic, so Charlemagne tried to impose the Roman ritual, which means the form of the mass that was being used in Rome, he tried to impose in his territories. Um, and then by, then by the 11th century, the only church that had a distinct ritual was in Milan, with the Ambrosian Rite from St. Ambrose. Okay, so it took a long time until everybody was on the same page, kind of doing the same Mass. Um, and I won't go into that. Okay, one of the things that changed, though, 
um, is fewer and fewer people were receiving Holy Communion. Um, in fact, lay people were discouraged from taking communion, um, lest it bring damnation rather than salvation, in some areas, in Gaul particularly, um, the Gallican rite. Okay? And so what happened was there, there, there came this influence into the church from Gaul, which was influenced by Arianism. You don't need to know all that stuff, but there was this influence um, through Gaul, um, sort of France-ish area, um, that uh, people were discouraged from taking communion because there was, there was such a focus on the unworthiness of the recipient, okay? So that they were not, they didn't even dare, they ought not even touch the body of Christ or the chalice. And instead, what, what started to happen was uh, the priest would distribute Holy Communion while they knelt. That's where that practice came in, was, was through Gaul and, and, and through a fairly negative view of what was going on with the reception of the Eucharist. And so it's at this time that the, the loaf of bread was no longer needed, and then the round wafer came into practice, okay, um, which is called a host. The host. What is a host, right? A host. A host is a sacrificial victim. That's where it comes from. A host. The host that bears you know, the, the, the sacrifice on the part of everyone else. Um, so what, what became, what started to happen now is a shift from thinking of the Mass as thanksgiving to more thinking the Mass as sacrifice, okay? I'm, I'm not making a value judgment. I mean, I might, but I'm not particularly right now. But this is kind of what's happening is we move into the, the high Middle Ages in the, uh, my timeline's gone, um, the High Middle Ages, the 12th century and forward, um, the focus is now becoming people are unworthy to receive the Eucharist, they're unworthy to touch the host or touch the chalice, and so fewer and fewer people are receiving Holy Communion, and the focus is, being, is now on what that priest is doing offering the sacrifice up there apart from us, as opposed to the early tradition of more of a communal meal of thanksgiving, right, which we talked about. It was a meal. I mean, it was a meal of thanksgiving. That's exactly what they called it. Um, now, as early as the 6th century, I realize I'm jumping around with timelines, but it's different actions here. Um, as early as the 6th century, altars began to be placed against the wall um, so that the sacrifice was no longer offered facing the people. Um, not universally, but it became the, the standard practice. And as churches were built, the congregation was moved further and further away. So that, um, how many people have been to Europe and seen old churches? All right, so think about some of those old churches and how far away it feels. You know, you have all those steps, and there's the altar, Right? and all the people are back in the nave of the church. All right, well, that's, that's obvious. It comes from the theology of what's going on, that the Eucharist is happening up there. This transcendent um, thing is happening apart from us who are largely unworthy to be close. Only the priest is worthy enough to be, to be close, <laughs> which as a priest just seems ridiculous. Um, 
to me, anyway. Um, okay. Um, and then the scriptures were no longer being read to the people, so then the priest just read those at the altar. Um, and so he would just stand at the altar, the people are back there, and he would just read the, the epistle, you know, the, 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 the reading of St. Paul generally, and the God, he would just read it there, he'd just do all his stuff there, and then when it was time for communion, he'd, he'd go and anybody who thought they were worthy enough would come up and receive. Um, um, however, one of the things that was happening was because, so this is the high Middle Ages, because the people felt and were taught, you know, that this, this great sacrifice of Christ is being, being made present on the altar and you have to be worthy to receive the Eucharist, it obviously was sort of assumed by the people that they probably weren't worthy, so they probably ought not receive. So the focus then became what was called at the time, this is true at the time, the saving gaze. And so when the priest would elevate the host, now turned in, you know, now transubstantiated into the real presence of Christ, the focus became the people looking at the, the Eucharist because they couldn't receive it because they didn't feel like they were worthy enough. <coughs> so this is where you also get the practice of adoration. It comes from, from these times. In the early church, the Eucharist was reserved because the deacon initially would be the one to take the Eucharist to those who were sick. Um, but so you, you did have tabernacles and you did have the belief that it was still Jesus in the tabernacle. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a tabernacle, right? Um, you wouldn't need one. Um, so the real presence of Christ was truly believed. But, it, but that worship of the Eucharist in, in adoration didn't come about until there was a change in how we practiced the mass. So, I mean, I would kind of argue it comes from not a great place theologically, which is it comes from hopefully we've 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 moved beyond that theology now. We should uh, we should have. But but back in those times, right, you, you, it's the 1200s. Nobody's none of these people are like they don't have high school diplomas. These these people are nobody. You don't even have universities until the I think the 13th century. So people are not educated. You know, there's a lot of superstition. There's a lot of um, misunderstanding about people's relationship with God. People couldn't read. You know, you can, you can have a printing press and, and construct a Bible and give it to people, but they can't read it because literacy rates are so low. So most people don't really understand. So what do they do? They go into these churches and they see these beautiful stained glass windows, which are catechetical, which teach them about God. They have all of these statues, which are catechetical, which teach them about God. And, and they have the, now the, the, the worship of God becomes the elevation of the, of the, of the Eucharist. Um, and you might say, well, Father, you're just making that up. The popes had to decree people have to receive the Eucharist at least once a year during the Easter season. It's in the book. It's still in the book. The reason it's in the book is because people weren't receiving the Eucharist. They weren't receiving. They weren't going to the Eucharist. So the popes, even in the 20th century, the popes had to say, receive the Eucharist more. You need to receive it more. So it took centuries. It's been centuries to kind of get it out of the people's heads that the Eucharist is not about worthiness as much as it is about thanksgiving and about what God is doing. 
Should you receive worthily? Yes. That's even in St. Paul. It was right after the stuff that I read. He talks about receiving the need to receive worthily. Yes, that's absolutely a part of the deal. But if we're so focused on how bad we are that we can never receive, then what's the, the, the point of the Eucharist is to be consumed. From, from the scriptures, you know, from its very origin, it's about consuming, about eating, more than it's about gazing. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with adoration. I'm not saying that. It's a worthy devotion that comes out of the, the proper theology, or it ought to come out of the proper theology of what the Eucharist is for, which is that we consume the Eucharist so that the grace that is the life of Christ is transmitted to our souls. That's the purpose of the Eucharist. That's why Jesus said, eat and drink. He didn't say, gaze. But that doesn't mean you can't, okay? Because as soon as you say, well, that is Jesus, well, if that's truly Jesus present, can't we worship him? Well, yes, of course you can. And so this is where devotions spring forth. They kind of come naturally out of, of different, you know, theologies of the time, etc. What we would hope is, is that, you know, people have a proper understanding of the Eucharist, um, that it's not about just, it's not a reward. What does Francis say? It's not a reward for the uh, worthy, um, which is, I think, how a lot of people see it, you know, but it's food for, it's, it's food for the unworthy, really. I don't, that's not an exact quote. <laughs> um, okay, so there. So anyway, you get to the Council of Trent, the late 1500s, you get the Tridentine Mass because you have the Protestant Reformation. So the church is like, we got a clean, clean house because it's crazy. And priests are off, off the reservation. Uh, so are bishops and popes. And uh, so you have the Council of Trent, this, this huge Reformation. And because of all of the chaos that was ensuing in Europe because of the Protestant Reformation, the church has basically said, we are going to put everything in a box. Everybody has to, you know, well, everybody has to believe the same thing always, but everybody has to practice the Mass, the form of the Mass, exactly the same. And if the priest deviates, it's a mortal sin. So the church from the late, mid to late 1500s becomes very, very rigorous, very legalistic about what you can and cannot do, especially with the Mass. And then that carries through all the way until you have the beginning of the 20th century, century where you have the liturgical movement, we have the popes calling for, some of those popes calling for more frequent reception of communion. You have priests calling for uh, reformation of the liturgy well before Vatican II. And then you have Vatican II in 1962 uh, through 65. And then we have the new mass, the most massive Pope Paul VI, which is called the Novus Ordo, the new order of mass, uh, which is what we continue to practice today. Questions? Yes. Well, you always start first. I'm going to go here. She's prettier than you. <laughs> but you have a better mustache. Father, what is the current rules for fasting before communion? The current rules for fasting before communion are um, an hour before the reception of communion. And the reason for that is, is so that, you know, it's not just about the rule. Now, well, what if I got to take medicine? And what if I got to take food with medicine? Then you take your medicine and your food with your medicine, okay? What if you're over, I think it's over 65, then you don't have to fast, 
any of the days of fast, you don't have to fast. And children, too. Yeah, because if you've got a kid who's going to be crying through Mass, please feed them. <laughs> Plus, they can't receive communion in anyway. Um, so, yeah, it's understood to be an hour before the reception of communion, which my Mass, if you go to the, well, you go to the 5.30, so that's about 6.10. So you can keep eating until 5.10, and that's it. Um, now, again, the... Why does the church have these disciplines? Because this is in divine revelation, right? The, the church has a discipline for fasting so that, you know, look, we're going to be consuming the Holy Eucharist, Jesus Christ himself. And so we want to be conscious of what we're doing. We want to be sort of purifying ourselves, preparing ourselves. We should be preparing ourselves before we get into the church for, for Mass. Right. Yeah, the uh, anamnesis. The word is actually anamnesis, which um, means more than remember. All right, it's it it means to make present. So there's a fuller understanding than just doing it in remembrance. Remember that the. The Jews did all kinds of stuff in remembrance. That was the point of the Last Supper, is that they did it to remember. But they believed that there was something sacred happening, with the, even with the Passover meal, as they celebrated it, remembering what had happened. The difference is um, who it is instituting that which is being remembered. So, again, Christ instituting... Uh, something and calling it his blood and saying, do this in remembrance. What is he saying to do? He's not saying, he's not saying do the remembering. He's saying, do the eating and drinking of my flesh and blood in remembrance, right? And also the, the word um, anamnesis is more than just, you know, do it in memory of me, but, but actually bring it about in, in memory of me. It has a fuller meaning in the Greek. Mas preguntas, yes. So um, why did the priest stop doing the um, gospel to the people they, if they were so unworthy to receive the yeah. communion? Were they unworthy to hear the word of God? Yeah, well, I, so the question is, uh, you know, why did, as, as the as the mass became just sort of what the priest did at the altar, um, I, I think it's more of, it's maybe perhaps more of a sort of organic thing taking place that since he doesn't have his, since he's got his back to the people and you're in these huge churches where people can't really hear that well anyway, um, that he just ends up reading the gospel to himself. It becomes more of a performance than it becomes something that people are drawn into. Does anybody remember the, the old mass? Bill, we got some people. Okay. Remember the old mass? I remember when I was a, an associate, we had uh, the, the Tridentine mass was allowed in the diocese. And so I, I helped distribute communion for two Sundays. And then I was like, I'm done. Because <laughs> I didn't have to. It, wasn't, it was like an outside group that came in and used our church. But I was like, I don't like this at all. 
I don't, I don't want to say this mass. I don't, uh, under that form, because it looked to me like there's the priest up there, and his back to the people didn't bother me, really, because um, I've said mass so many times that way, and, and when I was in Europe, all, you know, you have all these altars against the wall. It's just how you say mass. But, so that doesn't really bother me, because even when you elevate, the people can see, you know, and I project my voice so they can hear. It's just, you know, we're all facing God together is sort of the, the theology of it. But the, um, the thing that I didn't like was that all of this stuff was going on in Latin. So remember, it's all going on in Latin. The people don't know Latin. I mean, the priests don't even know Latin, right? The priests, so one of the things that happened in the high Middle Ages is, and this is where we, if we really start talking about all of the, the, the mistakes and the corruptions of the church, because it happens, it happened, it continues to happen. Um, but what was going on back then is there became this focus on the private mass. So you got all these churches with all these altars. And remember, the mass is a sacrifice, right? The focus is the sacrifice is being offered for all the people and for all their sins and all the people who have died. It's, a, it's this amazing gift that, that God is bestowing his grace on the world through the celebration of the Mass. So we got to do more of them. So let's build more altars. And now we're going to ordain all these guys who are going to be simple priests, simplex priests, just to say the Mass. Because we want more Masses to be said. So they ordain a bunch of guys, just regular schmoes, and they, and they just teach them how to pronounce the words. They don't know Latin. They don't, they're doing the stuff, and they're saying the words, and then they're going home and having more babies with their wives because that's what was happening because, you know, they're just getting guys out of the same mass. And then what happened was they said, well, we can apply an intention for the Mass. We can have one specific intention for the Mass. And we can ask people to give money for that. So let's have more Masses. <laughs> so they have more Masses and they're collecting more money, you know, and then they give the guy who, who goes off <laughs> with his family. I mean, this is just what was happening. This is why Trent was so, you know, let's, let's work this stuff out. It's just, it's just historically true what was going on. So, um, so I think what, what's happening is the Mass is being, be, is being sort of performed on behalf of the people so that the graces that come from the presence of Christ and the sacrifice being, uh, you know, made present um, for, for, the, you know, for, the, for the life of the world and for those who have died and those who are in purgatory. So if it's a good thing, let's keep doing more of it, right? Because more is better. <laughs> and that's how it was. More was better. So even back prior to Vatican II, you couldn't have concelebrating priests, right? You couldn't have two priests saying Mass at the same time. You can only have one priest saying his Mass, and then the other priest has to say his Mass. So the focus became performing the Mass because of all of... And again, you can see it in a negative light, but you can also... I'm trying to show you how it could also be a, a really positive light, right? Because Mass being such a great thing, you'd want to do it more often. So you have more of them. But then there's going to be abuses that creep in. And they're not all bad. I mean, not all of the bishops would have been bad, and not all of these simplex priests had wives, but a lot of them did, because it was chaos, you know? You couldn't just get an email or a phone call from the bishop, you know, straighten things out, you know? Plus, how are you going to survive on the pittance that you're being given for that one mass you're saying a day? So it's messy. Questions? Kathleen, my favorite. 
Okay, so the question is, by our star pupil Kathleen, if Jesus had a meal before the Eucharist, why can't we? Is that accurate enough? Well, actually, this is what happened, is that Jesus was celebrating the Passover meal. So the Passover meal wasn't a very elaborate meal. It was a very simple meal. So the bread was unleavened, so it wasn't allowed to rise, right? Because back when they were leaving Egypt, they had, a, they had a rush out of Egypt, so they couldn't wait for the bread to rise. So they used unleavened bread, which is why we use unleavened bread. And so it, it wasn't really an elaborate meal. What happened, though, so when Jesus was doing it, was, it was this sort of simple Passover meal with the Eucharist celebrated in that context. But what happened was as the, as the early church started celebrating it, you know, there were people who were really wealthy, and they're like, well, we're eating anyway, so let's have a great big meal. And that's where Paul actually corrects them and says, look, you basically have all these people coming together, you know, for, for this, for Eucharist, right? Because it was Thanksgiving, so they're focusing on Thanksgiving Eucharist, not Thanksgiving next week, but being thankful. And, and these people are really rich and snobby, and they have all kinds of money. So they got this huge spread of food. And then these poor people, poor people from Ash Fork, <laughs> they don't have much, you know? They have a very simple meal because they're poor. Down there, they're having this great meal and they're not sharing with the Ash Fork people. And so Paul says, knock it off. What you're doing is completely out of order. That's not what the point is about. The point is, in fact, if you are going to have a lot is to share. It's one community. It's one body in Christ. It's about unity. And so then basically what happened with the whole meal thing is the, just over time, the focus became just on receiving the Eucharist as opposed to the meal. Um, why that happened particularly? Um, probably because the, the people began to understand that what they were doing was worshiping God, okay? And that when you start to worship God, you usually kind of do it differently than sitting, eating a big meal, right? Um, that worshiping God takes on a different character. Like you're going to stand at certain times and have responses, and then you're going to sit. And so it becomes more formalized as the understanding of what they're doing kind of blossoms. Does that make sense? Good question. Okay, ite misa est.